This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. I hope you're having a fantastic day. I hope you're having a fantastic year. Happy New Year. This is episode number 37. It's the first episode of 2015. That feels pretty good. Uh, Mark Greeno, the tour supervisor and historian at the Virginia State Capitol, is on the show. Very excited to have him on the show again. He was on episode number five. That's a fantastic episode. It was uh, about the moving of the capital of Virginia to Richmond and the actual construction of the building that is the capital. Right. Really, really fascinating. Ask most people what that's about, and they'll say, well, Thomas Jefferson, he designed it. Right. It's far more complicated than that, uh, especially I mean, where they, the, the fact that they actually chose to build it on Shaco Hill where it is. Right. To take it into modern terms, right, the discussion about a baseball stadium in Richmond where it should be built. It's very, very similar. Bickering and fighting about the location of where this Capitol building is going to be, what the actual building will be. Really fascinating. Go back and check it out if you haven't heard it. Uh, But that's not what this episode is about. Episode 37 is about the Capitol during the Civil War. Right? And this is, you know, a very long conversation, action-packed, packed packed with content. So So I actually broke it into two halves. This is the first half, uh, and it's more about uh, the, be- the beginning of the story, Virginia, before it seceded, before secession, before it wanted to secede, right? The secession itself is a saga, uh, but I mean, within this story, there is, you know, Virginia becomes its own country. Virginia joins a new country. Uh, Virginia splits into Virginia and West Virginia. While Virginia, just, and just within the actual state of Virginia, there are actually multiple governments, that claim to be the Virginia state government. Uh, it's, there's a lot going on here. Uh, but I, I, I know I said this on episode five and I'm going to say it again. Uh, but Mark Greeno is one of the reasons that I started doing the podcast. I am a big fan, big proponent of podcasts. Uh, I listen to ton of them myself. And for one thing, I just wanted to hear a podcast about Richmond history, but also while I would be doing tours, uh, with River City Segs, which if you'd like to check out a Segway tour, River City Segs is the premier Segway tour company in Richmond. The only Segway tour company in Virginia with an indoor Segway-specific training area. One of the only Segway-specific training areas in on the East Coast. One of the only ones I know of. Uh, but find out more information about River City Segs at rivercitysegs.com, on Facebook, Twitter at 804segs, Instagram, uh, River City Sex will be going into their seasonal rates uh, starting in January as well. Uh, me doing some pretty hefty specials for Black History Month, Black History Tour as well. Um, oh, and if you don't want to ride a Segway, you want to just come take a private tour with me, you can contact me, Jeff Major, J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R, at historyreplaystoday.org, or contact me on Facebook or Tumblr or uh, or on Twitter, at History Replays. You can also let me know what, the, you know what you think of the show, suggest a guest, suggest a topic, whatever you want there. But, but anyways, getting back, I'd be doing tours of all sorts. Uh, you know, when you get the mass public involved, they start asking questions that I never even thought would be a question, right? Never even considered. And I would go into the the visitor center there at the Capitol and ask them and. They would refer me to Mark, and he is, was incredibly gracious with his time, and he would answer whatever random 
you know, meaningless question I had to ask. And he would also end up telling me some fantastic story that may be even unrelated. Uh, and just having these conversations with him, I figured I can't be the only one that's interested in this. Somebody else might like to hear this. So here's the podcast, right? I'm, uh, this is it. Um, but you should also go to the Capitol Visitor Center. It's really amazing. Uh, it's open from Monday through Saturday, uh, 9 to 5. They have guided tours that are available from 9 to 4. Uh, and on Sundays, it's open from 1 to 5, and they do guided tours from 1 to 4. Uh, they are free. If you don't know, great price. Uh, they are really amazing as well. It's uh, one of the things in the heart of downtown Richmond that a lot of Richmonders take for granted uh, when you're thinking, ah, there's nothing to do, there's something to do and it's free. Go by the Virginia State Capitol. And by the way, I talk to a lot of people who say, oh, I've been to the Capitol. I, you know, I took a school group or I took my kids there. You know, go yourself, right? Go as an interested party. Go go as an adult or if, if you're underage, listen to this, just, just an interested party, right? Just go so you can focus and, and actually see. It's pretty breathtaking. Um but I met him in one of the break rooms at the Capitol, um, there in the visitor center underground. Um, there is a little bit of background noise of people coming in and out trying to, you know, microwave their, their lunch or just grab a snack or whatever it is, something out of the fridge. Um, it is what it is. That's what happened. Um, but during the conversation, I also reference a style weekly piece, which is really interesting about the history of squirrels on the Capitol grounds. Um, it's kind of the start of all the squirrels around in the city, as I understand uh, from reading the piece. And I'm going to go ahead and post a link to that on this episode's page at historyreplaysaday.org. Um, but I started out the conversation talking to Mark, you know, about secession, how Virginia got into this in the first place. At first, uh, Virginia is very reluctant to secede from the Union, and there are good reasons for Virginia's reluctance. She felt closely invested with the old Union that was created out of the American Revolution. When you think of our founding documents of the United States of America, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which inform that Constitution, Virginians were front and center in creating and getting those documents ratified. And then there's the Virginia dynasty of presidents. So four out of the first five U.S. presidents are from Virginia, and then three more Virginians will serve in the presidency before the American Civil War is right. uh, breaking out. So, you know, Virginia felt closely tied to the Union. Yeah. And so the, because, um, you know, it was, we're not the most northern slave state either. I mean, Maryland is also a slave state at that point. Right. That's right. And uh, before the uh, war got underway and uh, continued on, you could uh, buy and sell slaves in Washington, D.C., across the Potomac River from Virginia. And Virginia's economy had close trade ties not only with the South, but also with the North. So economically, Virginia's invested in the northern states as well as in the southern states. Right. And the... Uh the, the this, I mean, are there the rhetoric that goes on? I mean, I know that that's like, but you know, politicians t 
talk a whole lot. I mean, particularly Virginia politicians. Right. They're especially good at talking. <laughs> we're uh, in the Capitol right now. They do a great job in here. Um, but, I mean, I know, you know, in South Carolina, of course, like, the you know, there's all kinds of fantastic, you know, colorful talk. I mean, was that not going on here? I mean, was it – was there not a push on one side for secession? Or? You could find secessionists in Virginia – in the early going, but they were a distinct minority, and they felt themselves to be a distinct minority, much to their regret. Okay. And the further south you went and got closer to the Gulf states, the more rhetoric you were hearing. Right. And in retrospect, it took a long time for the Confederate States of America to assemble itself. They didn't just you know drop a hat and suddenly become the Confederate States of America. It was essentially a six-month process to slowly and surely collect the falling leaves off of the Union tree and come up with a written constitution, create a provisional Congress, uh, appoint a provisional president. And it took several months to not only create this new Confederate States of America, but it took several months before any shots were fired. Right. Um, So uh, South Carolina secedes. In December, in December of 18 and 60, shortly after the presidential election that put Lincoln in office. Right. And then um, Fort Sumter is... April. April, yeah. right. So that's that's much far... That's not even close, really. It's not even close. And so you have additional states seceding in January and in February. Uh, slowly and surely, uh, the Lower South coalesces into this new Confederate nation. And their first capital is down in Montgomery, Alabama. That's about as low south as you can go geographically. And they are creating a Confederate nation with the Constitution and their Congress and presidency before the first shots are fired in April. Right. So there's this sort of long, uncertain political purgatory where nobody really knows what's going to happen next. And one thing we do know is that Virginia and North Carolina and Arkansas, and Kentucky, and Tennessee, and Missouri, and Maryland are showing no signs of leaving the Union in those first several months. But we did have a vote, right, before Fort Sumter? Just before Fort Sumter. Mm -hmm. Now, what'll happen is uh, the the Virginia authorities make a decision that the political crisis that has come into play by the beginning of 1861 is so severe that there should be an authorized Virginia convention to meet in Richmond, which is separate and apart from the ordinary Virginia General Assembly. Right. And that this convention will have the special duty to sort out the proper course of Virginia in this unprecedented crisis uh, mm-hmm. of the Union falling apart. And the general voters of Virginia who would be eligible to vote for lawmakers in the Assembly were the same people who would be eligible to choose 152 convention delegates to come together in Richmond and decide what the proper course for the Commonwealth would be. And they started meeting in February and spent two months making elaborate speeches on why Virginia should not secede. And the secessionists were distinctly in the minority. You could find two or three unionists for every secessionist in that convention. Wow. And we know that because when the people who wanted to serve in the convention were running for election, they were announcing their views beforehand so the voters could choose accordingly. After Fort Sumter, they're going to vote again pretty soon, right? Because, right. And that's be prompted by Lincoln, and his, right? Yes. There are 
a series of events which occur in April in quick succession that will have dramatic changes in the loyalties of the Upper South. Mm -hmm. And on the 4th of April, 1861, before the first shots are fired, and nobody knows that, hey, in another week or so, you know, they're going to fire on Fort Sumter. Nobody can predict this in advance. But on the 4th of April, before any shots are fired, the Virginia Convention finally gets around after two months of speech-making on holding a vote, do we secede or not? Mm -hmm. And it was a slam-dunk, we do not secede result, with 90 convention delegates voting to stay in the Union and 45 voting to secede. So by a two-to-one margin in the first week of April, 1861, Virginians are going to stay put in the old Union. Then, on the 12th of April, South Carolina pulls the lanyard and starts bombarding Fort Sumter. Mm -hmm. The following day, uh, the federal garrison at Fort Sumter has to surrender. Mm -hmm. And the federal government cannot ignore the surrender of a federal fort uh, in Charleston Harbor. So the reaction of the Lincoln administration is to call up 75,000 volunteers from those states which have not yet seceded in order to suppress the unwarrantable uh, insurrection of the Lower South. Sure. So what that means is by uh, the 15th of April, 1861, uh, the War Department of the United States is calling on uh, the Union states to supply their quotas of troops for the Federal Army to invade the Lower South. So that means the governor of Virginia of North Carolina, of Arkansas, Mm -hmm. of uh, Kentucky, of Tennessee, and Missouri and Maryland are getting the same requisition for troops as the New England states and the uh, Midwestern states. And this is a whole new situation for Virginia leaders in Richmond. It's one thing to talk about whether we should secede uh, in peacetime as an abstract political question. But now a war has begun that Virginians did not want to start right. and did not want to see. But now that there is a war underway, you have to choose sides. In the end, uh, however unpleasant it may be, you've got to decide, are you going to aim your muskets at Northerners or at Southerners? Right. And when the call for troops went out, Virginia's governor was requisitioned to supply three regiments of Virginia soldiers Mm -hmm. for the use of the federal government. And the federal government might have hoped for some luck with Governor John Letcher of Virginia because he was a unionist. Mm -hmm. He had in his inaugurational speech in 1860 come out strongly in favor of the union. Mm -hmm. But he will change his mind. And, And in fact, we can quote from Governor Letcher when he responds to the requisition for troops that were Uh, came his way. I'll find it right about in here, I think. But he's pretty clear. He says, The uh, militia of Virginia will not be furnished to the powers at Washington for any such use or purpose as they have in view. Your object is to subjugate the southern states and a requisition made upon me for such an object, an object not within the purview of the Constitution, will not be complied with. You have chosen to inaugurate civil war, and having done so, we will meet it in a spirit as determined as the administration has exhibited towards the South. And then he signs off respectfully. John (laughs) Ledger. 
So this Unionist governor is radicalized by Lincoln's call for troops to march against the Lower South, and he will not supply the militia. The Virginia Convention, the same people who had two weeks before voted convincingly against secession, realize they now have to vote again under new and changed circumstances, and Virginia executes a political about-face. Mm-hmm. And on the 17th of April, the convention, which by that point was uh, meeting inside the House chamber in the historic Virginia State Capitol building, uh, voted 88 for secession, 55 for union. Right. So now the unionists are in a majority, but a rather sizable... I mean, excuse me, the unionists are now in a minority. Right. Uh, but a rather sizable minority. Mm-hmm. And in the end, those uh, unionists don't go away. Right. Um, that is the beginnings of what will lead over a two-year period to the creation of the new state of West Virginia, uh, which will go back into the Union, essentially uh, deciding to secede from the seceders right. Right. <laughs> to uh, you know get back into the Union as a new state. And so something interesting you said, that the historic building, would they have seen it as historic? At that point, well, it's, it's not that old. It's, I mean, it's not old, as his, it's it's historic in our thinking, of course. Right. Uh, speaking in the twenty first century, uh, the capital of Virginia had opened for public business in seventeen eighty eight. Right. So by eighteen sixty one, it's eighty something years old. Right. And it was the traditional public building for public business uh, uh, business mm-hmm. in Virginia. Uh, it did not look the way it looks today. Right. And it might be worth a few moments to let our listeners know what does the building look like in 1861. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not have east and west wings for the House and the Senate. Those wings were added in 1906. They opened in 1906. Mm-hmm. And although Mr. Jefferson had called for front steps leading up to the columned south portico, there were no front steps on the building. Sure until 1906. So it's the center portion of the Capitol today uh, without front steps that would have been known to uh, people in 1861. Right. But the original four walls are still standing and the original columns are still there. Sure. And, and, and I guess while we're on that, the, the equestrian statue yes. is there partially. Yes, yes. It is uh, not complete, but... You do see, and by 1858, you know, three years before the Civil War begins, mm-hmm. if you're standing on Capitol Square, you can behold a 60-foot-tall bronze equestrian statue of George Washington in his revolutionary uniform on a big uh, horse, and Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson and George Mason are pedestrian statues keeping him company, and there's a big granite pedestal, and you can see, gosh, there are more statues that must be on the way, but uh, that'll have to wait until after the Civil War. Right. And, I mean, are there, I, I believe that what Henry Clay statue, was was it just? The Henry Clay statue had been unveiled on the 12th of April, 1860, exactly one year to the day before the firing on Fort Sumter. Okay. And it was outside on the square, a little bit south and west of the old Capitol building. And it uh, is rather interesting Mm -hmm. that the unveiling was on what would become the anniversary of Fort Sumter. The reason they unveiled it on 12 April in 1860 was that is Henry Clay's birthday. Okay. Wow, yeah. You know, a man remembered as the great pacificator, the compromiser who, during his lifetime of public service, 
was able to um, prevent the North and South from from you know falling apart. Right. Sure. That's definitely definitely some amazingly ironic business. I'm sure they would have enjoyed having him around. That's what he had to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's. Um, Sort of, a, it's a very sad commentary, but appropriate for the period to mention that after the Civil War broke out, you had members of Henry Clay's immediate family choosing opposite sides. Right. I think it's a very popular uh, story. Seems like through a lot of uh, a lot of folks, which is pretty amazing. I mean, when you really get down to you know your country, but like shooting at your brother or your dad is pretty pretty intense. You're pretty angry at that point. Um, but anyway, so getting back, so Virginia's gonna we're gonna. Um, I got distracted. We did. We actually we started talking about other stuff. So, oh yeah, wait. So the the actually the rest of the grounds though is it is there any manicuring, or does it look like just a grass or a hill or? Well, by the beginning of the American Civil War, the public grounds of Capitol Square had been undergoing a relatively recent but comprehensive landscape campaign. So in the 1850s, driven by the knowledge they were going to unveil this magnificent equestrian monument to George Washington. Uh, the city fathers, uh, with uh, cooperation from the state fathers, decided to spruce up uh, mm-hmm. the, the lands of Capitol Square. So they had been putting in winding walkways and replanting a variety of trees in a picturesque way. And uh, there were already two fountains on the square, but those were um, you know, revisited to make sure they were operating properly. So it was a beautiful, well-landscaped, pedestrian-friendly mm-hmm. uh, grounds uh, in the years leading up to the American Civil War. Right. Um, and I guess based on a super interesting uh, piece that was in Style Magazine, no squirrels. Well, actually, uh, I beg to differ because okay. I think it was uh, the superintendent of public buildings, Samuel Freeman, if memory serves, who in the 1850s... Okay made a conscious decision to bring squirrels onto the square. Oh, fair enough. So I think they are there, but they are a relatively recent uh, development. Um, And, yeah. Um, Did you read that article at all? No, I didn't see the one you were referring to. Some some really amazing, uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but some uh, really amazing quotes out of the newspaper of how... um, you know, people were going out to watch them, and then randomly a dog would come and attack one, and, you know, the fury that happened because of these cute little furry things, and um, just how the, uh, I don't know, it's an interesting article. All you right. should read it. Um, but anyway, so, um, but, you know, so Fort Sumter happens, Virginia secedes, um, but we have the second vote, right, and you're talking it's almost the exact opposite uh, in numbers, Yes, uh, you go from a 4-April vote of 90 to 45 to stay in the Union to a 17-April vote of 88 to 55 to secede right. from the Union. And and then we just talked about a second, that they're not voting to become part of the Confederacy. No, uh, that will have to be a separate vote for a separate day. Right. And the vote on the 17th of April to secede will set the stage and make it possible for Virginia to join the Confederacy, but she has not joined the Confederacy on the 17th of April. That will mean more debates and more speeches and another vote. Right. And what's not often remembered today in the 21st century is that there was yet another vote in the month of May from the voters of Virginia at large who were 
allowed to vote on the 23rd of May, 1861, whether or not they agreed with the convention's decision to secede and uh, subsequently the convention's decision to temporarily form an alliance with the Confederacy. So in the end, the people of Virginia who had the vote in 1861 um, could have put a stop to it all. Right. But by that point, enough water had gone under these troubled bridges that by more than a five-to-one margin, the voters in general of Virginia endorsed uh, the secession of Virginia on the 17th and a temporary alliance with the Confederacy that had been put into place on the 25th of April. But it's interesting, though. Right. When you look at the different locations of that popular vote in May of 1861, as you get up into the northern and the western counties of Virginia, you can find a two-to-one margin of voters who still don't want to secede from the Union, even in May of 1861. Right. So, yeah, so, so the, 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 the popular vote ratifies the convention um, to secede. Um, is there any kind of, I mean, is there any question that we're going to join the Confederacy? Or is that, like, we voted to secede. Is that, it's just a given that we're going to have another vote later and we're going to join the Confederacy? Or, you know, the, it was not a given that Virginia would secede. But once Virginia takes the plunge and secedes, everybody is willing to not be surprised if Virginia joins the Confederacy. And there are a lot of reasons for Virginia to consider joining the Confederacy once she has forfeited the protections of the Union. Right. Um, The Commonwealth of Virginia didn't have much hope standing on her own between a belligerent northern power and a belligerent southern power. Absolutely. And it seemed like a sort of a good idea to circle the wagons with the southern confederacy to enjoy the group protection thereof. And it's interesting, the process by which Virginia joins the confederacy is a piecemeal one, but it's happening fairly quickly. We know on the 17th of April, Virginia secedes. Mm -hmm. On the 23rd of April, six days later, the Virginia Convention, on the recommendation of Governor John Letcher, unanimously approves of the commissioning of Robert E. Lee to be commander of the Army and Navy of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Right. This is a state commission to a uh, native Virginian who has just resigned from the Federal Army rather than be promoted to lead the Federal Army against Virginia and the Lower South. But their power was to give him a state of Virginia commission only. Right. They're not in the Confederacy. As the country of Virginia. As the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yeah. Right. And that's on the 23rd of April. Now, what's really interesting is what happens that same day in that same room. Once again, we're in what is now the old hall of the House of Delegates or the old House Chamber, Mm -hmm. which is a great favorite place on our guided tours of the Capitol, which are free and happen seven days a week, I might add. Uh, So as you go into that room, the old House Chamber, you see a statue of Robert E. Lee standing on the spot where he stood Mm -hmm. to um, throw in his lot with defending the Commonwealth of Virginia. Mm-hmm. But Virginia at that moment is not in the Confederacy. Right. But later that same day, in that same room, by invitation, a foreign ambassador, you might say, 
uh, addresses the delegates of the Virginia Convention, and he brings with him a letter of introduction from Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, with its capital in Montgomery, Alabama, and the foreign ambassador who wants to address the members of the Virginia Convention is Alexander Stevens of Georgia, who is now the vice president of the Confederacy. And he is given the courtesy of the floor, and he launches into a long and fascinating speech. And to put it in modern terms, the Confederacy has sent Stevens to Virginia as a closer. (laughs) And it's Stevens' job to convince Virginians to join the Confederacy as soon as possible. Right. And he proceeds to make a really eloquent speech that was calculated to, you know, uh, address the history and the pride and the sentiments of Virginia. And he was a perfect person to have chosen to offer this connection to the uh, Virginians because when he had been in the uh, the Georgia Convention, he had personally voted against the secession of Georgia. So he's one of those reluctant rebels right. who you know changes course as the events change. Sure. And so he knew how to speak to these Virginians right. who had until recently not wanted to leave the Union. He could understand that. And so he lays out all the reasons why now they should change their mind sure. and join the Confederacy. And he makes this broad hint, which might be worth quoting, because it is a prophecy that will become true and allow us to continue this interview. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as he's you know, making his case for Virginia to join the Confederacy, uh, he says, among other things, our government, meaning the Confederate government, is very desirous that your ancient commonwealth shall become a member of our Confederacy. Um, in the meantime, before that union can be perfected by the action of your people, And by that he means he knows next month in May, on the 23rd of May, the people of Virginia who can vote will have a chance to decide whether they have seceded or not. So he knows that, you know, that vote has to take place. But he says, in the meantime, uh, we think a temporary alliance or a convention of the highest importance to meet the exigencies of the day and of the hour. The enemy is now at your border, almost at your door. He must be met. This can best be done by having your military operations under the common head at Montgomery. And there's maybe a dramatic pause. Or it may be at Richmond. For while I have no authority to speak on that subject, I feel at perfect liberty to say that it is quite within the range of probability that if such an alliance is made, the seat of our government will within a few weeks be moved to this place. Mm. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And the, you know, the suggestion is very clear. Sure. Sweeten the pot. Yes. Uh, if you join the Confederacy, we'll relocate our headquarters to Virginia. Right. Right here in Richmond. And after he finishes his speech, a committee is formed by the convention to consult further with Alexander Stevens on what form a temporary alliance might take. Mm-hmm. And they report back, and by the... Uh, 25th of April, meeting in convention at the Capitol, the delegates of the Virginia Convention decide we really do need to join hands with the Confederacy until the people have a chance to review everything next month in May, just for military necessity, if nothing else. Right. And the 
part that gets really interesting is at the beginning of May, back in Montgomery, the Confederate Congress meeting in secret admits Virginia to full membership in the Confederacy about two weeks before the popular vote in Virginia, <laughs> uh, which will end up you know, having the same result. Sure. But, you know, the Congress of the Confederacy wastes no time in saying, you guys are in, right. we'll just wait for you to officially vote, but in the meantime, we've already taken care of business right. uh, down in Montgomery. Well, they also, is it Kentucky, I believe, that they vote in and that doesn't actually well, secede? Kentucky officially proclaims neutrality and okay. then falls apart into internal faction and warring sections. Okay. Uh, it's interesting, in the case of both Kentucky and Missouri, the politics were so confusing within those two states that as the war progressed, you could find representatives and senators for Kentucky in the United States Congress and representatives and senators right. for Kentucky here in Richmond in the Confederate States Congress. Sure. So, you know, it just depends on where you stand. Right. Um, and it actually occurred to me just now that I hadn't really didn't think of this. I don't know why the whole time, but um, the last the last time you were on the podcast, we were talking about moving the capital from Williamsburg to Richmond, and now we're talking about a different capital moving from Montgomery to Richmond. That's a really interesting point, and I've thought about this before, and it's fair to say that the American Revolution put Richmond on the map as the capital of a new commonwealth mm-hmm. of Virginia. Then, uh, in the following century, the American Civil War will put Richmond on the map as a wartime capital for the new Southern Confederacy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Richmond's status as a seat of government and power uh, owes a lot to both uh, the American Revolution and the American Civil War. Sure. So, and I guess Richmond at that point has you know, one of the largest slave industries, the largest tobacco industry, coffee industry, the um, Tredegar Ironworks, um, the, you know, the, the flour industry as well, which I believe is the largest in the country as well. Um, I mean, does Montgomery have any, I mean, is there any industry there or is it just, I mean? <laughs> well, Richmond had a lot of important infrastructure that would be valuable to the Confederacy in wartime. And you've just named virtually all of them. Uh, the largest ironworks in what becomes the wartime Confederacy would be here in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um, the, one of the largest flour, the largest flour mill in the South was here in Richmond. Uh, you had also a very important textile mill here in Richmond, okay. the Crenshaw Woolen Mills, which would become crucial for making uniforms. You also had uh, a shipbuilding uh, ability uh, down below the Richmond docks. Mm-hmm. So ultimately the safest inland shipyard for building steam-powered, iron-sided Confederate warships would become Richmond. Right. And railroad connections coming in from different points of the compass to Richmond. But let's not stop with Richmond. Virginia itself, writ large, was a huge prize for the wartime Confederacy. If you're fighting uh, what becomes a full-blown civil war, Mm -hmm. you need access to iron, you need access to coal, you need access to lead, Mm -hmm. you need access to saltpeter as a basic ingredient for Mm gunpowder, you need access to just ordinary table salt Mm -hmm. as your primary means of preserving food uh, in the 19th century. Right. And when it comes to all of those natural uh, amenities or natural resources, Virginia would be either the first, second, or third most important source of supply to the wartime confederacy of all those things. Wow. 
that's pretty dang yeah. impressive. Yeah, it's very impressive. And and so they haven't even. Uh, I guess we haven't even gotten to that part. They ha- when when are they going to actually vote to to move the capital up here? Yeah, it won't take long. Okay. Uh, as as we mentioned earlier, the voters of Virginia weigh in on May twenty third, eighteen sixty one, endorsing the actions of the convention to secede and to uh, join up with the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. And by the end of May, that same month, Jefferson Davis is physically present in Richmond, and he's going to be relocating the executive branch. Oh wow! Okay. The Confederate Provisional Congress will show up in Richmond at the end of July, 1861. Okay. Now, there was supposed to be a Confederate Supreme Court, Uh as called for in the Confederate Constitution, but the Confederacy died as a nation before they were ever able to organize the Confederate Supreme Court. Right. What basically happened was the existing federal district and circuit courts uh, just got rebranded as Confederate courts. Right. Yeah. And so is there fanfare? Like oh, when he sure. shows up, yeah. I mean that's yeah. like I mean everybody knows Davis is in town and yeah. he's making the papers, and it uh, he stayed at the Spotswood Hotel on Main Street, mm-hmm. and eventually the city fathers made arrangements for the first family of the Confederacy by buying what is now known as the White House of the Confederacy from a private Richmond owner, right, and then renting it to the Confederate government, right, sure, um, and so the. I mean, does it? I guess it's a it's a weird. Um, I mean, I, I assume they sorted out a constitution in Montgomery, right? That was pretty much done by the time they got here. Correct, and that's why nobody from Virginia ever signed the Confederate Constitution. Okay, and that's why you know a Virginian was not a Confederate president. Right. Sure. Uh, because you know the creation of the Confederate nation with a constitution and a president and a congress all took place before Virginia was associated with it. Right. And so, I mean, is, are they going to... How long does it take for them to actually... I mean, I assume they have some pretty urgent business. Like, as soon as you get here, the congress has to... You figure, have to figure out how to get guns and armies and well, point people and... You know, one of the simple things was, where is this Confederate Congress going to meet? Sure. Uh, in 1861, the congress was... Uh, Unicameral, a fancy word for one large body of people. There was not a separate House and Senate. There was just one provisional Congress, and it had roughly 116 people in it, okay. uh, representing you know the various seceded states. Mm-hmm. And there's no Confederate National Capitol building in Richmond, Virginia. Right. And so the Virginia Convention had extended the offer to the Confederacy when you arrive here. Uh, feel free to um, use the Virginia State Capitol building uh, as an additional tenant. Uh, you know, we, the authorities of Virginia, will continue using our state capital for state capital business, mm-hmm. but we'll let you uh, share the building. Right. So they started meeting in the summer of 1861 in what was uh, the House of Delegates chamber, today's old house chamber. Okay. And at first that wasn't too tough a situation because the convention that had adjourned Uh, to come back later in the fall, and the Virginia General Assembly, the state legislature, was not in session that summer. So it was easy to find space in the state capitol building for the Provisional Confederate Congress. Okay. But by the end of 1861, everybody realizes that's not going to work very well Mm -hmm. because the General Assembly of Virginia is coming back, Mm -hmm. and they're going to want to use, you know, the state capitol. Sure. The convention 
has some unfinished business uh, to, and they're coming back. Mm-hmm. And then you've got you know the Confederate lawmakers that are still around. So right. there might be as many as a hundred and excuse me, there might be as many as four hundred and forty or four hundred and fifty lawmakers in oh, one wow. building. Yeah. Which was not a, normally going to host more than 152 to 202 people. So right. basically double the number of lawmakers are suddenly all going to be wanting to use the same building at the same time. Right. And what was in the rooms? Because they're not all in the same rooms. No, they can't be. So what gets kicked out? Well, uh, basically what will happen is at the end of 1861, Virginia will undertake at her own expense to make necessary interior remodelings Mm -hmm. to accommodate the Confederate lawmakers and continue to accommodate the state legislature. Mm -hmm. And the Virginia State Senate, which had been meeting on the second floor just inside the portico, got booted upstairs to the northeast corner of the third floor, and their old state senate room got remodeled and significantly enlarged to become the hall of congress yeah. uh, for you know the confederate lawmakers and by the beginning of 1862 additional remodeling had to be done because by the beginning of 1862 the confederate congress evolved from one body to two bodies right. so just like the us congress by the beginning of 1862, February the 18th to be precise, you've now got a need for two separate rooms, one for the Confederate Senate, one for the Confederate House. So another room on the third floor, northwest corner, was remodeled at Virginia's expense for the Confederate Senate. Mm -hmm. So for the remainder of the war, which you can say is that the Virginia House and the Confederate House were meeting at opposite ends of the second floor. Right. And the Virginia Senate and the Confederate Senate were meeting side by side uh, in adjoining rooms on the third floor. Okay. The lower houses and the upper houses, as yeah. the saying goes. And, and how is, are they, uh, are they peaceful together? <laughs> or Well, uh, you know, Virginians observed the forms of hospitality and it was admitted that the Virginia House Chamber and the Virginia State Senate Chamber were a little bit nicer than mm-hmm. the you know recently created Confederate House Chamber and Confederate Senate Chamber. Okay. So from time to time, when the General Assembly of Virginia adjourned, they would occasionally extend an invitation to the Confederate lawmakers to borrow the state mm-hmm. chambers, you know, while the state government was not in session. Right. Which sometimes the Confederate lawmakers would do, and. For the part of the Confederate lawmakers, they were not always very uh, pleasant or uh, grateful tenants. uh, Virginia had spent money in their behalf to give them a wartime place to meet, at least in the short term, as an expediency. And certain members of the Confederate Congress uh, found it possible to complain that not enough was being done for them. And the governor of Virginia basically put an end to all that by writing an extended letter refuting point by point the various complaints the Confederate lawmakers were making and saying, this is what we have done at our expense to accommodate you. This is what we have done. This is what we have done. Uh, And basically, uh, let's move on. Sure, sure. Um, And and a strange thing, I've actually asked a bunch of people about this, and no one seems to have any indication. It's one of the weirdest things that the, the population is 
explodes. Explodes, and right. that's the right word for it. So where Virginia are was living? a big city before the Civil War started, with you know upwards of forty thousand people mm. speaking in round numbers. Uh, usually considered the third largest city within the South mm-hmm. by the beginning of the Civil War. Nobody knows how high the wartime population of Richmond explodes to, but people have guessed 100,000, 120,000. Certainly the population more than doubled, and it may have even tripled. Right. So and these are Creating fancy, all kinds of pressures. Yeah, these are fancy fellas. Dude, these are, these, well, it's a whole range live? of humanity. You've got lots of you know fancy people in high government offices coming, but then you have all the ne'er-do-wells and all the opportunity seekers and sure. a variety of people looking to prey on, on uh, wartime circumstances to their private benefit. And as one Richmond woman put it, actually one Richmond lady, rather high-toned Richmond lady, looked around at the transformation of peacetime Richmond into wartime Richmond, and she lamented that Richmond was becoming worse than Sodom <laughs> or New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, one or the other. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, like, these guys aren't going to sleep on people's couches, right? Are they? Well, <laughs> they, there's, there's, there's talk that in the very beginning, in the initial flush of incoming um, wartime residents, that some of the uh, gentlemen or some of the ordinary men were sleeping on billiard tables. Oh, wow. In okay. the various hotels. So at first, it's a you know, pretty much catch-as-catch-can arrangement. But boarding houses spring up. If you are a widow, that's a great way to earn a wartime living mm-hmm. is uh, to make spaces in your home available to boarders. So a whole range of boarding houses spring up. Of course, the hotels do a booming business, right? as you can well imagine. And um, you have a lot of of temporary residents, meaning soldiers of the southern states coming and going and training in large encampments on the outskirts of town. Yeah. I just think if I, if I was going to be um, go back in time and make a bunch of money other than stealing a gambling book like they did in Back to the Future, real estate during the Civil War. I, mean, it's, there's, I haven't seen yet like really any major building projects. Right? With that many people, they got to live some, you know, it seems like you could make a pretty good amount of money, but I don't know. I've yet to. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen anyone that has any evidence of that ever happening of a of a new apartment building or anything like that. that well, space is at a premium, not only for you know ordinary workers and um, newly arrived residents of Richmond, but space is at a premium for uh, the government officials. Right. And it was an ongoing issue uh, throughout the Civil War how to find enough space for state and confederate committees to meet in, mm-hmm. uh, for uh, legislators to carry on their public business. And uh, within the Capitol itself, you know, the building was very overcrowded. Sure. So what to be done? There was an interesting event that did not happen that okay. everybody thought was going to happen mm-hmm. that I might mention because this is not very well known. Um, it was clear that the arrival of the Confederate Congress to share the same Capitol building with the Virginia General Assembly was a wartime necessity, uh, was an expedient to resort to in the short term. But I don't think there were very many people who imagined that the state Capitol building would permanently host two legislative bodies at the same time. Right. So by the end of 1862, 
the press was reporting in a very confident tone that the nearby Exchange Hotel, immediately east of Capitol Square, which was up for sale, was going to be either purchased or rented so that the Confederate Congress, House and Senate, could relocate to large rooms in Mm -hmm. the Exchange Hotel. And for that matter, when the lawmakers of the Confederate Congress were coming into town for sessions, they could just you know, rent the rooms upstairs, uh, right. which seemed like such an obvious, you know, adjustment to make that everybody assumed for sure it was going to happen. Sure. So it doesn't happen. Right. Uh, and the reason it doesn't happen is pretty fascinating. Not everybody in the Confederate Congress was delighted to have Richmond as the new national capital of the Confederacy. Okay. And so this whole idea of relocating to the Exchange Hotel seems like a done deal, but the Congress has to approve it, Mm -hmm. and so the issue is publicly raised to be uh, considered. And then you see certain individuals in the Confederate Congress doing their best to prevent the rental or purchase of the Exchange Hotel. And... One of them was Henry S. Foote of Tennessee, and there were other members of Congress, uh, notably Jeremiah Watkins Clapp of Mississippi and uh, Mr. Grandison Delaney Royston of Arkansas, who were offering a series of resolutions that make it clear that not everybody's happy with Richmond. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you have uh, uh, the Mississippi congressman, Uh, suggesting in uh, February 1862 that they should form a congressional committee uh, to uh, find a suitable place where the archives of the government in such state papers as are not necessary for immediate use or reference may be deposited for safekeeping, and also where requisite accommodations for various departments of the Confederate government may be obtained in the event of their removal from the city of Richmond before a permanent seat of government is located. Mm. You know, suggesting, well, Richmond is not even a permanent location. Right. It's passive-aggressive as well. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you have on the same day um, uh, the congressional congressman from Arkansas saying, well, maybe we should have the Committee on Public Buildings be instructed to inquire into the expediency of removing the Confederate government from Richmond forthwith to a more central point of the Confederate states, and that they report by bill or otherwise to this house in secret session. So you have all this sort of undertone of dissatisfaction. And Henry Foote makes it clear that he doesn't want people to get moved over into the Exchange Hotel because that would make things a lot more comfortable and convenient for the Confederate Congress, and they may never decide to leave Richmond. And he says, I just cannot abide the idea that you know Richmond would remain the permanent capital. So this seemingly obvious adjustment right. uh, is torpedoed. Uh, and is he just not trying to be a small fish or small fish in the pond? Or what? Why? What would? What would someone? What would a state representative have against Richmond? I mean, being the capital. Well, the state represent. I noticed that these uh, congressmen who are complaining are from Mississippi and from Arkansas. Is and foot not from Tennessee. They're not from Virginia. But did you? Are, so were you not saying there was two camps? Isn't there? What you're saying there was a Richmond. I mean, a Virginia state delegate, and both, neither one of them wanted it. There no, I'm saying that these are these are uh, members of the Confederate Congress okay, from enough. outside Virginia. 
right. who are uh, gumming up the uh, idea that uh, they should just move into the Exchange Hotel. You don't find so, resistance from the Richmond I, right. I didn't think or so. the Virginians. Yeah, they're, they're thinking. You know, the Richmond Press is reporting very favorably on this impending sure. relocation of the Confederate Congress to the Exchange Hotel. And so, is there are there specifics that they bring up? Is it or they just want it in their state, or is it the how overcrowded it is? I mean. Or what is specifically about Richmond that would be distasteful? I mean, it, it seems like, especially by that point, you've put a lot of effort into not only having the capital that this is where people know it is, but the defenses of it, mm-hmm. right? It seems like it would be, I don't know, you don't want to move your king all over the board, and you know, where you, before you get caught. I, it's 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 hard to say. Yeah, you know, it's hard to put ourselves in in their shoes. Uh, the malcontents were not successful in getting the Congress to relocate the seat of government away from Richmond. But right. they, they were successful in torpedoing this move well, to the Exchange Hotel. Well, I, I guess they were eventually yeah. successful in the military prowess. The, yeah, the, the right Confederate in. House of Representatives even voted twice. You oh, know, twice. You know, when, when it got shot down the first time, you know, the proponents of the, oh, let's vote again. So there right. were two votes in the House, but they both failed. Wow. And the and with with no alternative, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just we'll it's just, just carry on with the existing situation. Sure, I mean, but but when they proposed it, was there ever we're going to move it from Richmond to dot 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 or no? It was just uh, they were waving uh, the malcontents were waving the flag around to consider moving it to some more safe or central location without sure. designing to say exactly where that was. Right now, there is this one little interesting unofficial event that the Richmond press picks up on. At some point during the war, without explanation one day, Confederate lawmakers come into the Hall of Congress on the second floor of the Virginia State Capitol, Mm -hmm. and someone has left uh, on various desks nice little uh, art prints of the beautiful classical temple-style state capitol in uh, Tennessee. (laughs) It's just sitting there, and, you know, the, the presumption is, oh, there are some people who might want to consider moving to the state capitol in, in Tennessee, and they've sure. got a nice Roman classical building that you know is inspired by the Virginia state capitol. Frankly, right. sure. So you want a classical temple building to meet in? Well, maybe Tennessee. You know, that seems sure. to have been the implication. Spoiler alert: uh, Richmond remains the capital. Uh, but thank you, Mark Greeno. Thanks for listening to everybody. Look for part two coming up on January 15th. Uh, I have some really other really great shows coming up as well. Uh, I'm very excited about Ed Ayers, who is the president of U of R and one of the hosts of Backstory with the American History Guys, which is one of my favorite history podcasts. Actually, my favorite history podcast. It, it definitely is. And, you know, please support the podcast. Uh, you can write a review wherever you're listening to this, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is. Uh, sponsor the podcast, right? If you're your business or whatever, if you just want to be an individual, you can sponsor the podcast. Uh, you can also just, just make an investment in it by donating to the show. Every little bit counts. You can find out more information at historyreplaystoday.org, uh, or you can you know just by clicking the support button. Uh, let me know what you think of the episodes. Again, Jeff Major J E F F M A J E R at historyreplaystoday.org. On Facebook, Tumblr, or at History Replays on Twitter, and make it a great year.